Uh, We are starting a new sermon series this morning, Uh, but before I jump into that, I want to just do something really quickly. Jaleesa, if you could just throw that first slide up. It's it's an image that I just want to show you. I want to give you an overview of what we're going to be doing this year. So this is the sermon series for the year, okay? And the goal, the hope, um, we're looking at, we're, we're sort of following the church calendar. For those of you that are familiar with Pastor Liz's practices with the kids, she's often shown them that circle image of the church calendar. Do you remember that? On a, on a, it's not like a wood plate. So this is a, a circle image of the church calendar. And the wonderful thing about the church calendar is that it, it enables us to look at the whole breadth of Scripture and see the narrative of Christianity. And so we're not exactly following it to a T, but what I wanted to do was create sermon series that over the course of the year enabled us to see the whole breadth of the narrative, okay? So we're, we're digging into the Old Testament this fall. That's going to introduce us then into Advent, um, lead us into actually talking about Jesus then. So we'll have been steeping ourselves in the Israelite narrative so we can understand where Jesus came from, what would have influenced him, what his context was. We, ex- we, we anticipate the coming of the Messiah as Israel would have. So we steep ourselves in the Old Testament until Advent. Then we're going to be looking at the songs of Advent. So the song of Mary, the song of Zechariah, Simeon, and the angels for Advent. Then Christmas happens. And then after Christmas is, of course, a time to dig into who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and what his teachings were. And so we're going to be doing a sermon series on the names of Jesus and looking at how some of his teachings then intersect with that in the Gospels. That's going to carry us into Lent, of course, then until Good Friday and Easter, where we commemorate his death and resurrection. And then, of course, after Easter, we're going to talk about the church, because after his resurrection was the birth of the church. So we'll celebrate Pentecost, and then we're going to be looking into uh, the, Galati- the letter to the Galatians, which I'm very excited about. This, the, whole, the whole year I'm excited about, but Galatians is really exciting. So we're going to be, the hope is that we can actually find touch points along the way that connect all these series together. But that's the scope for the year. So I just wanted to let you know that that's where we're going. Because I'm going to be making references back and forth throughout these sermon series that hopefully connect them together. And then the goal would be that every year, this is what we do. We look at the whole breadth of scripture and we see the whole narrative as as through that lens. So yeah, just wanted to give you that framework. Um, And now... We're starting a new sermon series in the book of Jeremiah, Lessons in Jeremiah, Finding God in the Wilderness is what I've titled it. And the question, of course, to be asking for us this morning is, especially anytime we look at an Old Old Testament book, we we ask ourselves, well, what is there to glean from this old book today? How is this still relevant, right? There's a reason that many of us don't often open up the Old Testament and think, oh, This is exactly what I needed for myself this morning. No, why is it important to be digging into the Old Testament still? Well, as I mentioned earlier, in order to understand the significance of Jesus coming, we need to some extent be be steeped in his history, in his context, in what his influences were. And whether we want to think this way or not, as adopted sons and daughters of the king, as co-heirs with Christ in his inheritance, We've been adopted into the Israelite history. We've been adopted into the people of God. We've been adopted into their context. This history is also our history. So similar to how we all have family trees in our own biological family lineage, we have a spiritual family as well. Whether we want to accept it or not, church history is our history. 
Israelite history is our history. These are things that we need to understand. And yes, it's at time messy and awful and broken, but is that really so different than our lives today? Sometimes Old Testament history is a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes church history is a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes our own lives and our own brokenness and our own messiness is a little bit uncomfortable. So it's always good to be asking ourselves, where is God when things just aren't that great? When things are unexpectedly hard? I served, with, um, I served as an intern with a, a pastor down in Iowa a number of years ago, years ago now. And a couple months before I had gotten there, this pastor, his name was Russell, had just done a funeral for his own dad, which would be awful, it would be very hard. His dad had passed away suddenly. And I remember a number of people sharing this with me, that literally the first thing he said when he got up to the pulpit to start his message, he simply said this, this sucks. This sucks. And it was a moment that caught people off guard, but at the same time was a moment of resonance with them. Because the reality was that in that moment, he was showing them rawness. He was showing them emotional honesty, a term that Tim Sheridan actually used last week, and I want to adopt. He was showing them vulnerability. It was a heartfelt, raw, emotional, this sucks. This is really hard. And for many of us in this room this morning, and for many of us perhaps that, even, that aren't here, there are situations and circumstances that we're facing that are just really hard. And that's not to say that we can't still find joy. Not at all. It's not to say that we can't still choose joy in moments. Paul says very clearly in 2 Corinthians, we don't despair because we know that Christ is always doing something in us. Christ is always moving his spirit through us. There's always something happening that can elicit joy within us. But that doesn't negate the reality that we still need to ask ourselves, where is God when it hurts? When I feel like the world is just falling out from beneath me, when I feel like I'm trapped in, in a wilderness of my own doing, when I actually can't work myself out of my own fears, when I can't overcome them, when I don't feel like I have the courage to do those things. Honestly, that's what I, when I read through Jeremiah, that's what I would have imagined Jeremiah thinking on a number of occasions. He's known actually in scholarship as the weeping prophet. And that's for a reason. He's one of the most accessible personalities in the Old Testament. Because what we see in this book is rawness. We see vulnerability. Like David in the Psalms, he's just bearing his soul sometimes. And we'll look at some of those passages as we go. Again, this is kind of an introductory sermon. We'll look at some of those passages later on. But he's, he's emotionally honest. And for that reason, he's relatable. There's times you read through Jeremiah and your heart just breaks. He's relatable. Because whenever people are honest and raw and transparent and truthful, whenever we're real with one another, those are timeless moments. And Jeremiah is just a trove of treasures for us today for that exact reason. It's, it's at times kind of long and repetitive, <laughs> as, as some prophetic books are. It's got language that's hard to grapple with, but the reality is it's raw and it's real life. With real circumstances, with real history embedded into it. 
And what that means is that Jeremiah can still speak to us today. Because anytime something is raw and real and deeply human, it's relevant. It's timeless. And that's what Scripture is for us. We cannot know Jesus if we don't know these Scriptures. We actually love Him more when we seek to understand where His teachings and where some of His influences came from. So, this morning, we're going to dive into Jeremiah. And I really want to encourage you to read it for yourselves this fall. If you've never read through the book of Jeremiah, please do it. Because we're only going to be able to touch down here and there, bits and pieces. We're not even going to cover a quarter of it. There's just not time. So I really want to encourage you to read some of it on your own and discover some of these treasures for yourself. See how God speaks to you through this. The passage that we're looking at this morning is very short. Again, it's just introductory. So we're looking at the introduction to this book in Jeremiah. Just three verses. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So if you've been able to open up your Bibles already, or if you haven't yet, and you turn to the book of Jeremiah, words will also be on the screen. Just three verses. Hear these words. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth, in the, in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Israel, or sorry, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. This is the word of the Lord. To God. Oh, come on. You can be a little more thankful than that. This is the word of the Lord. All right. You might be wondering why on earth we're looking at these three passages, but, or these three verses, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain. Okay, there's just two things I want to tackle this morning related to this passage. First is, is the bare bones history of what Jeremiah would have been experiencing, okay? So right at the beginning of this book, Jeremiah tells us that these were the years of his prophesizing, prophesying years, okay? So I want to actually give you a sense of what those years actually looked like because the rest of the book won't make sense unless we know that, okay? So I, I want to give you a bit of a history lesson. And then the second thing I want to do is I want to share with you some thoughts on the impact of exile... I'm going, to, I'm going to use the term wilderness, okay? The impact of wilderness in the life of the Christian. The purpose, the meaning of wilderness experiences in the life of the Christian, okay? So we're going to do those two things today. First, history. All right, so the, this passage, these three verses, mentions that Jeremiah heard from God starting in the reign of Josiah through to the reign of Zedekiah. This was, as you can probably glean already, this was not a good time in Israel's history, okay? This, these are tumultuous years. These are political, chaotic years. Religious changes happening all over the place. By this point, Israel and Judah are actually two separate entities, okay? So for over 100 years now already, they've been separated. Civil war, kings fighting against each other. You know some of the history, I'm hoping. Um, but the reality, too, here is that you can see this. They've already been split. Israel was situated in such a place where... The hope had been, they, they were right in the middle of all these competing other nations and empires. So if Israel had functioned the way that they were supposed to, they would have been able to have missional impact all around them, right? Because they were at the crossroads of everything. They were right dead center. But the reality is now, because they were idolatrous 
and not listening to God and not obeying his voice and not being a light to the nations. They were being the opposite. They were now being conquered by the nations. So at this time, what you've got going on is a, the big empire was Assyria. They have actually already conquered Israel by this time. So the king of Israel is sort of existing as kind of a vassal king to the king of Assyria. Egypt is putting pressure on them from the south. But now this big empire known as Babylon is also coming in, taking over parts of Assyria and starting to put pressure down on them from the north. So Judah is sort of sitting there, you know, with, with their holy city of Jerusalem. The temple is in Jerusalem. They're kind of sitting there hoping that nothing's going to happen to them, thinking, well, we're, we're good and strong. We've got the temple. We've got the holy city on a high hill, right? God's not going to let anything happen to us. That's kind of where they're at. Nobody's going to listen to a prophet when that's the attitude that you have. So what we see then also in these passages, um, Jeremiah outlines a few of the kings, but we see the full progression of them. If you go to the book of 2 Kings, if you've ever read through First and Second Kings, it's just ongoing lists of then this king, and then this king, and then this king, and then this king, and then this king. Um, but it's even more interesting than that. It's this king was good, this king was bad, this king was good, this king was bad. And it's just idolatry, repentance, idolatry, repentance over and over and over. This is Israel and Judah's history. Now, Josiah, however, he was a game changer, okay? There was a string of evil kings, and then Josiah comes. Josiah, a king like none other. He actually became king when he was eight years old. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is a king who could have flipped things around, okay? He's actually noted as being like David, which is a good sign. King David, everybody wanted a king like David, right? That was going to help them conquer their enemies, that was going to be uh, righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Josiah had all the signs of a good king that could flip things around for Judah. And during his reign, something very interesting happens. So, by this point in Judah's history, Israel and Judah, the book of the law, so to speak, the law of Moses, all of the covenant stipulations had not been touched for centuries, centuries. And what happens during his reign is a priest comes in one day and says, I found this in the temple, and it's the book of the law. We're not 100% sure what that was. Probably the book of Deuteronomy. But Josiah hears this book read and just goes on this huge repentance spree. He gathers all of Israel together, pulls them into the temple, all the priests and prophets, everybody has this book read and brings all of Judah into repentance. And then what he does is he goes on a spring purge and he literally travels throughout the entire realm of Judah and takes down all the shrines, all the idolatrous high places, all of the sacrificial temples and, and tables and, and altars, everything. Because by this point, Judah has become so idolatrous that there are household gods to every god under the sun. Okay? There, were, there were women who weaved pieces of artif artifacts, clothing, whatever, for the goddess Asherah in God's temple. So in Yahweh's temple, there are women weaving artifacts for a different god. That's how bad it was. It was everywhere. And so he just gets rid of all of it. He gets rid of absolutely all of it. All of it comes down. It just goes, the list just goes on and on. <coughs> and you know what? Seeing this, Jeremiah must have been thinking, this is it. This, this is when change happens. 
This is when, when God comes back. This is when Judah becomes his, his place to dwell again. Because look at what's happening. Shoot, he was only five years into his prophesying ministry. He's probably thinking, wow, I'm doing a really good job. <laughs> five years in, you and me, Josiah, this is it. This is when God's going to flip things around. Imagine the hope that would have been in his mind. Seeing what was happening. There was no king like Josiah. It actually says in 2 Kings 23, 25, it notes that there was never a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart and soul and strength. Now, we immediately think of Jesus. But these words actually originate with Moses. Moses was the first to say that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. In other words, what the writer of 2 Kings is saying is, they thought Josiah was the new Moses. They thought Josiah was going to do it. But then, after 31 years, he dies in battle. Oh, okay. Well, now what? Okay, he dies in battle. Egypt's putting pressure on. Um, his son Jehoahaz, who's 23 years old, becomes king and reigns. Oh, I was going to say, can you guess? <laughs> Survey says three months. Three months. After 31 years, his son steps up and he's reigning. He reigns for three months. He's evil. He gets carried off to Egypt because, like I said, Egypt's putting pressure on Judah. Egypt's kind of in charge now by this point. So Jehoahaz um, gets defeated by Egypt. Pharaoh puts a different king in charge, again, kind of a vassal king. His name's Jehoiakim. He ends up, he's 25 years old. He, he does a little bit better. He reigns for three years. Uh, but he also does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's during his reign now that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, maybe you've heard his name before, he's now putting pressure on Jerusalem. So you've got Egypt putting pressure on from the south. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, putting pressure on from the north. And he invades the land. Now, Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, so you got Jeho number one, Jeho number two, and Jeho number three. He comes in, becomes king, does evil, reigns another three months. You can just, just imagine, okay? Just imagine Jeremiah's disappointment. Watching utter chaos happening around him and having to prophetically speak into this season. How difficult that must have been. Nebuchadnezzar advances on Jerusalem, lays siege to it, and Jehoiakim ends up, oh, so, okay, so quick thing. The last one there should, should be Jehoiakim, C-H-I-N, okay? It's a different person, all right? Jehoiakim. He surrenders. Nebuchadnezzar puts Zedekiah, his uncle, on the throne, who reigns for, next slide, 11 years. All right, okay. But by this point, Zedekiah is like a vassal king to Babylon. Babylon's taken over. Guess what Zedekiah does? He eventually rebels against the king of, of Babylon. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem and literally burns the whole thing. Temple's down. All the high places are down. Everything's gone. And Jeremiah writes this in chapter 24. It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah. And in the end, this is the sad thing, in the end he thrust them from his presence. That was the worst thing that could have ever happened, right? Because Jerusalem 
for the people of Jerusalem, God dwelled in that place. And what exile meant was that God was literally saying, I cannot be around you anymore. I cannot do this anymore. He thrust them from his presence. And you've got to imagine this, how hard that must have been for Jeremiah to write. Years and years of seeing political ins and outs, chaos, good king, bad king. And now it's done. This was what his prophetic ministry all led to. How defeated he must have felt. You know, most of us like to leave our jobs, you know, on a high note when the company or the organization is doing really well. That wasn't the case for Jeremiah. God thrusted his people out. God was separating himself from this, and it all happened on Jeremiah's watch. So overall then, Jeremiah prophesied 18 years of Josiah's reign, three months of Jeho number one, three years, or three months, three years of Jeho number two, three months of Jeho number three, and then Zedekiah for the first 11 years. So we're talking roughly 32 and a half years, give or take a week or so, okay? 32 and a half years, compiling this book together. These prophetic utterances happen over a course of 32 years. I mean, think about it. Eugene Peterson wrote the message translation in 10 years. We've got to give Jeremiah a little more credit. It's a long time. Just Jeremiah was tasked with hearing, obeying, and speaking God's word over a span of 32 years to people who did not want to listen. Not at all. Didn't want to listen. No one wanted to listen. He had to obey God while dealing with his own grief, his own suffering, watching unbelievable chaos around him, being ostracized by everyone, including his family. I mean, how did this guy survive? He knew where it was going. Right from the beginning of the book, he tells us, like total spoiler alert, why would we bother to read this? Right away, you tell us that this is going to exile. Why would I want to read this if that's where I know it's going to end up? Why would you bother passing this on if this is where you knew it was going to end? Well, this is why. And I think this is what kept Jeremiah in it. God may have thrust his people out because of their fierce rebellion. He did. He may have pushed them away from his presence because they broke covenant and had to suffer the consequences. Yes, absolutely. But in his faithfulness, he also did it so that they could find him again. So that eventually they would find him again. It is a frequent pattern in Scripture that God takes us into the wilderness in order to find him. Jeremiah was one such individual who needed and who looked and who craved for God in the wilderness. So we're going to spend the next however many weeks talking about how we too can find God in the wilderness. When I was at Regent, that's where I got my, uh, my master's, there was a chapel service every Tuesday. And loved going to these chapel services. It was a nice break from the academia. And there was one Tuesday where the academic dean was speaking. And I don't remember a thing that he said other than this. He was talking about wilderness. And he said, most of the Christian life is spent in the wilderness. 
most of the Christian life is spent in the wilderness. And I remember sitting there and thinking, feeling kind of a tension. On one level, I felt relieved because most of us students were going through our own sort of wilderness experiences and so, oh great, this is normal. But then on the other hand, that was terrifying. Because it made me think, well wait, you mean this never ends? Like, this never goes away? This feeling in the wilderness? Most of the Christian life is spent in the wilderness. In a place that actually feels distant from God, where we're wishing that he would just be a little bit closer. Where we actually have to work at the relationship. Where we feel like outsiders in a world that's unfamiliar. Where we long for a setting that feels like true home where we're sometimes stripped of what we typically depend on, what makes us comfortable and feel good about ourselves. You know, frankly, that's actually what we sign up for when we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ and a life following Jesus. Living a crucified life with him, which we're going to talk about a lot when we get to the Galatians. Because we don't indulge ourselves in the world the way that everyone else does. We don't indulge in what's popular and what's popular and, and what's powerful and what's flashy and what's comfortable because Jesus calls us to a life that's far more significant and it's a life that will naturally lead to opposition. He calls us, like Jeremiah, to a prophetic life in the wilderness where wilderness experience is simply normal where we don't shy away from hard things. We don't ignore them. We don't ignore those experiences just to keep up appearances. We don't find messiness and brokenness uncomfortable, no matter what degree they are. We don't turn a blind eye to brokenness and injustice right in front of us because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't simply agree with policies and laws that harm the vulnerable. We see brokenness. That's what we do. As people of God and as followers of Jesus, we see brokenness. And we see it better when we let ourselves rest in the wilderness. When we regularly ask ourselves, where is God in this place? Because if I'm regularly doing that in my own life, I'll more quickly do that when I see brokenness outside of myself. When I see it in someone else or in a situation, I'll be quick to ask, where is God in that place? Where can we bring hope into that place? Where can I see hope in that place? Eugene Peterson wrote in one of his books, the world is a frightening place. And if we're not just a little bit scared, we simply don't know what's going on. And that's not, that's not meant to cause despair. That's actually meant to give us a sense of purpose beyond just the regular mundaneness of our lives. As followers of Jesus, we're called to see this. We're called to see this. Yes, this world is a frightening place. Yes, this world is a broken place. We actually long for Jesus more when we open our eyes to see how much he needs, how much the world needs him. This is step one of our Christian calling, actually. It's to see brokenness. We often talk about seeing you know, the need for brokenness within ourselves or the need for Jesus within ourselves. But the first task of the Christian is just to see brokenness in general. It's a broken place. And then to find God within it. 
E. Stanley Jones uh, is the writer of this wonderful devotional called In Christ. I would highly recommend it. It gets a little bit heady at times, but he's just so good. It's called In Christ. It's a devotional. And in one of them, he notes that the usual Christian attitude is to think that confidence and boldness comes if we are freed from suffering, right? I'm more faithful, I'm more confident in my faith, I'm more confident in God, and I'm more bold to speak about him if I'm not suffering, if I've been freed from my enemies, if, I, if my circumstances are going well. But he says it's actually the reverse. It's actually the opposite. He uses the example of Paul when he was in prison, and Paul wrote many of his letters out of prison, okay? But specifically, he wrote to the Philippians, and he said in that letter, that many of his Christian brothers and sisters were actually able to speak the word of God more boldly and without fear because of his imprisonment. Because he was imprisoned. The early Christians, in other words, thought differently than many of us still do today. Jones says this, we expect the good to be exempt from suffering and pain. So God is good if he saves us from trouble and calamity. That's why God is good. You can, you can see now where some of this theology ends up very easily going into sort of a, a prosperity gospel, right? Where believing in God is all about having a good life and receiving good things from him, right? He says this, but Paul had instilled into the early Christians the faith that the Christian isn't exempt from trouble. He uses it. He takes hold of whatever comes, good, bad, or indifferent, and takes it up into the purpose of his life and transmutes it into achievement and victory. Now, that's, it's a little bit wordy, but the idea of it is that the Christian, she can take whatever trouble, whatever hardship, whatever pain comes at her, and in Christ, by his Spirit, she can see it transformed into something victorious. Now, this takes a lot of courage. It takes grit. And we need to be willing to actually see it happen. But think about it. If Paul hadn't written his letters from prison, we might not have them today. He did more in prison than he could have free. He was raw. He was emotionally vulnerable. His situations caused him to be that way. He was totally transparent in his letters. You read some of his letters and he's just gushing with affection. And that's in part because of his circumstances. Because he doesn't know when he'll get another chance to say that. But it enabled him to just gush love out for these people. He wouldn't have done that otherwise. So his writings, inspired by the Spirit, are therefore to us so relatable. It's why we use them in greeting cards <laughs> and we speak them over each other. Because of that rawness, that emotional honesty, it's timeless for us. The hope that can be felt in the midst of wilderness suffering is one that simply does not make sense to a watching world. The hope that we can experience in our wilderness wanderings is something that is just so profoundly otherworldly and deeply spiritual. Spirit-driven, in other words. 
I think most of us are aware of um, a woman by the name of Mother Teresa. Uh, she passed away a, a number of years ago now. Um, and she's most well known for her outpouring of love to the vulnerable members of or vulnerable citizens of Calcutta, mostly lepers, but others as well. And she's known for her cheerful disposition, for the structures that she organized, all the other sisters that she brought in, for her just endless, tireless work. Those are all the things she's known for. But few are aware, unless you've read the book, of the inner struggle that Mother Teresa felt for most of the years of her ministry life. She once stated that if she was ever to become a saint, surely it would be one of darkness. And I'll clarify that, what that means. She said, I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. So the way that she looked at it, obviously it was deep in her struggle and deeply painful. But the way that she looked at it was that her own darkness, her own wilderness experience enabled her to enter into the darkness of others and to be a light. She didn't want, actually, others to know that she had such an inner struggle. She didn't want it to be about her, in other words. But one of the Catholic fathers who knew her well wrote this, it would be important for her sisters and for many others to know that her work had its root in the mystery of Jesus' mission. And this is the key. Her work had its root in union with him who dying on the cross felt abandoned by his father. Why else would God send a suffering Messiah? A suffering Messiah. Why else would he do that if not to prove that he was the God who understood pain and suffering? That he was a God who wanted to meet us in our pain and suffering as one who understands it. No one understands feeling thrust away from God's presence more than Jesus. Have you ever stopped to actually just imagine how heartbreaking that must have been for him? How abandoned he must have felt. And yet, the confidence in those moments on the cross to be able to know that all of it all of his pain and suffering was going to work out for God's glory. The confidence he would have had to have had to know where it was going. And what glory it was. I know, I know, that talking about pain and suffering is hard. I know that this might be a difficult question for some of you to answer, and you don't have to answer it. But I want to ask this. What wilderness are you currently experiencing? Whether it's a small wilderness or something that's just completely overtaking your life, what wilderness are you currently experiencing? And how might it be able to be transformed into glory? How might... God use it for victory. Not at the expense of emotion. That's, that's not to say that we don't have 
pain and heartache. We don't set aside those things. We don't set aside emotion. That's not what we do. We bring all of that before a victorious Christ. And like Jeremiah, we listen for his voice so that we can find him in the wilderness. We aren't exempt from trouble. We use it. And we learn how to do this by having our ears open. Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 7, But this command I gave them, says the Lord, Obey my voice. Hear my voice. Listen for my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Hear my voice, says the Lord. Seek me. Listen for me. Find me, in other words, in your wilderness wanderings and watch for me. Watch for my spirit. Watch and just imagine what I can do. Look for me. And see how I can transform your pain into victory. So, can we trust him enough? And can we trust his love enough to know that when he takes us into the wilderness, when he takes us into wilderness circumstances, wilderness experiences, when he takes us into the wilderness, it's not because he's thrusting us from his presence. That's not how it works anymore. It's the exact opposite. He takes us into the wilderness so that we can find him because he's already there. He's already there. Let me pray. Living God, I just simply want to ask this morning, Lord, that whatever each one of us is going through, that you would meet each and every one of us in that place. Lord, for all those of us who are struggling, Lord, in this season, whatever it may be, by your Spirit, Father, meet us there. Remind us of your presence. And as we journey through the book of Jeremiah, speak to us, Lord. May we journey through these experiences together to join in each other's joys and sufferings. And may we see hope at the end of it. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.